For 25 years, Mike's has been making lemonade the hard way. Mike's Hard Lemonade. Hard days deserve a hard lemonade. Mike's is hard. So is prison. Don't drive drunk. Premium all beverage with flavors. All registered trademarks used under license by Mike's Hard Lemonade Company, Chicago, Illinois. Fluffy bread, fresh tortillas, classic burger buns, and so many carbs. Carb fear is real, but Hero Bread makes healthier versions of the carb-heavy favorites we love the most. We're talking fewer calories, 0 to 2 grams net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and seriously great taste. Plus more of the dietary fiber and protein you want. No compromise. Don't skip out on your favorites. Just use Hero Bread. Get 10% off your order at Hero.co with code Hero10 at checkout. That's Hero10 at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Am I different? Yeah. Have I changed my pants? No. Deep down, you know you want to wear wider bottoms. You're just not secure enough to do it. Prove it, sucker. Prove it. Prove we're wrong. Do I do my hair with a weed whacker? I admit. Beam me up here. Do I wear skinny ties? Yeah. Coach, wide ties make me look heavier than I am, and I'm heavy enough. Are you going to resign? I've never been a quitter. I don't think I'll quit now. Mr. Gephardt says you should. Gephardt has no balls. Beam me up. I say it's time for Congress to shove these illegal tactics right up the assets of the IRS. I think it's time for our president, Mr. Bush, to say, read my lips, get out. What we're saying is, read my pocketbook. Beam me up, Mr. Speaker. What? What did I just... <laughs> what? Jim Trafficant, part one, let's go. Welcome to Fraudsters, the podcast that gives you the scams you love from the fraudsters we hate. I'm your co-host, Cena Gazdavi, along with Ariel Lieti and Justin Williams. Today, guys, we're talking about a guy who is a star college quarterback who almost made it to the NFL. He was a sheriff who carried a two-by-four around and a politician (laughs) who was in Congress for nearly 20 years, then got expelled, sent to prison, and still ran again from prison. Legend. This sounds like something my like uncle would say. Like I did, I did all this, this, and this, and I was arrested. I got out of prison. I was with the leader of the gang in prison. <laughs> I was elected foreman of the gang. Yeah, <laughs> exactly that. This is about Ohio Congressman Jim Trafficant. But as you heard in the cold open, there's more to Jim Trafficant than just this weird hair thing or his weird suits and bell bottoms there's a toupee i'm not sure if it is a toupee i don't know it's not a big deal but he's six one he was the tallest peacock in the pride while preening around congress for nearly two decades he was also committing some of the most brazen violations of public trust the crimes are one thing but what was most shocking was his disinterest in trying to hide them <laughs> for decades he ran his scams in seemingly broad daylight But sometimes that's how it is, like Donald Trump. If you admit to the crime but act like it's not really a crime, people will forgive you. It's like the real Peacock. Remember from our Cecil Rhodes, Cecil Foot How could I forget Cecil Foot? Cecil Foot. Cecil Foot forever. (laughs) The tale of the Peacock. 
It's a colorful announcement to their predators that lunch is ready, yet somehow they have survived. Somehow, traffic and survived and continues to be remembered as a hero in many circles today. Wow. It's it's so funny when you can be considered like eccentric because like you take that same set of statements that we just listened to and that's just like a guy at Port Authority bus station yelling. <laughs> <laughs> I love that guy. Yeah. It definitely is drunk uncle at Thanksgiving vibes. Yeah, I'm into it. You know, but the historic context of where he was from is nearly as important as the story we're telling today. You guys know the Rust Belt, right? right? Oh, yes. Familiar? Rust Belt, I, the right? what? I, I believe I, I live in it. <laughs> the yeah. Rust Belt? No, I don't know anything about the Rust Belt. Uh, okay, so we're going to go through the Rust Belt here. So I'm from Pittsburgh. That's part of the Rust Belt. And I grew up hearing about the steel mills closing down. And that's what led to a lot of economic problems in the area and a lot of other cities. The Rust Belt obviously also included more than just steel, like coal and other forms of manufacturing. But if you look at the list of the cities, and these are just some of the cities that are listed in the Rust Belt. You've got Buffalo, Chicago, Detroit, Milwaukee, Cincinnati, Cleveland, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, and Youngstown. Mm. You've heard of every city on that list. Mm -hmm. They all have football teams except Youngstown. They don't? But What do you mean? Youngstown doesn't have a football team? Why? Have you... What do you mean? Why not? Because Cleveland, Cincinnati, Youngstown is... Well, we're going to get into why. It seems like they should. So all these cities are like the hottest men that I know. Cleveland, Cincinnati, <laughs> Buffalo, Detroit. Ooh, baby. Do you like sausage? <laughs> yes. This is all, this is all the... Yeah, 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 Youngstown is like the second tier of industry. Because even Ohio, right? You know, even when you go down from your Cleveland, Columbus, you know, you get down into your Youngstowns and your Daytons mm. and your Akron's. Mm. Yeah. But, you know, people really don't know Youngstown. Yeah, I mean, they should have a football team. I understand that. But Youngstown rests in the Mahoning Valley. It's about an hour from Pittsburgh and an hour from Cleveland along the Ohio border. That town, along with two others, Warren and Niles, were responsible for 10% of the nation's steel production per year in the 1970s. That's roughly 10 million tons of steel. They were second only to Pittsburgh. And just, like, imagine the number of people they employ, the number of jobs in that whole valley to produce that much steel every year. And we actually sat down with former Ohio State Senator Bob Hagan to talk about Youngstown and Jim Trafficking. Senator Hagan served in the Ohio Senate from 1997 to 2006 and ran against Trafficking for Congress in Ohio's 17th Congressional District in 2002. He later held a seat in the Ohio House of Representatives from 2007 to 2014. Here's just a quick clip from our interview where he's giving some background on Youngstown. A lot of people were working. The dust on your porches meant that uh, people were uh, enjoying the the successes of both their wages, uh, raising a family, buying a house. And the other part of it is that, and I was experiencing this as well because I worked in a steel mill for a couple of years and then the railroad for the last 50 years while I was a state legislator. But the environment was really bad. You could hardly breathe. You could see it in the middle of that valley, uh, the, the coal dust, uh, the dust that from the manufacturing and the growth of the steel mills. And people paid very little attention to it because, again, that meant that, that uh, there was posterity. There, people were working. People were enjoying something and they're making a few dollars. 
God, the irony of that, that even at your most prosperous times, you're actually shortening your life. That's, that's it really is. rough. Took a lot of time before we realized that. And, and it, right now, it's we've got some of the cleanest air around. Poverty <laughs> <laughs> rate as well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, jeez. We'll have more from the senator a little later. Youngstown's geographic location, though, also made it a hotspot for the mob. Yeah. Uh, Richard Pryor, his ma- mafia story is actually about a nightclub in Youngstown, Ohio. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And I, I think about Goodfellas where there is that one weird throwaway scene where like they're running from the Pittsburgh mob and it's like it's like about mattresses or something. <laughs> There's always some weird shit. And the Pittsburgh and Cleveland Mafia, they like got along like the Steelers and the Browns. Right. Plus murder. Mm. And they and they both thought Youngstown was their territory. Like plenty of Youngstown to go around, but really not. This dispute over what family owned the territory around Youngstown made the city the front lines for mobsters trying to wrest control through any means necessary. In 1963, Youngstown was nicknamed Crime Town USA mm. by the Saturday Evening Post. I like that. Youngstown's a little better than Crime Town. No, Crime Town USA. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I want a shirt that says Crime Town USA. That's hot. <laughs> and the and the guy who wrote that article is the guy who wrote the biography for Al Capone. Mm. So like uh, it, it had some some strength mm-hmm. behind it. Other nicknames, because you know if you have one nickname called Crime Town USA, you're gonna have other nicknames. But other nicknames that were bestowed upon the city were Murder Town USA. Mm, it's murder. Bomb City USA and Yompton, which is a comparison to Compton. Oh, I like all of California. these. This is so fun. Yeah. I like Bomb City. I think that might be my favorite. Bomb City USA. I do want to wear the hat and the sweatshirt. Please, bomb please city. have that set up for the next merch drop. Bomb Bomb City. Oh, bomb City. Well, bomb Bomb City. Well, yeah, the sixties and seventies are these hilarious things where the you know the Midwest, uh, some of these places become like the car bombing capital of like the world. I think I think it was Cleveland, right? The story from like no, Kelly this, Yeah, you are about to see. The car bomb capital of America. <laughs> Man, I miss a good car bomb. We don't do that anymore. Bring back American. No, no one does. <laughs> no one does that. Bring back our jobs. I would love to get into a Prius and like touch the button and have it explode <laughs> on me. That's actually the way I want to die. That's what's going on with the Teslas. <laughs> okay. So yeah. we got a clip from a local news station in Youngstown covering how Youngstown got named. Crime Town USA. The article appeared under the headline Crime Town USA with a subheadline that read Youngstown has had 75 bombings, 11 killings in a decade, and no one seems to care. Years after <laughs> being called Bomb Town and Murder Town already by other publications, uh, this one was Crime Town USA and it re- really stuck. <laughs> really stuck. I think so. Really people, I, I get the feeling some people cared about the 75 bombings yeah. in a decade. Yeah, they, I mean, but what's weird is that economically they were doing pretty well despite all of these things. Everyone yeah. was working. Everyone had a job. Everyone was protected. They were buying homes. It was going well. But we've got another clip here that's more about the history of Youngstown. Bill Lawson, who runs the Mahoning Valley Historical Society, was struck by the bluntness of Kobler's writing, who described Youngstown as a place where, quote, buffoons and incompetents succeed to important civic posts. Officials hobnob openly with criminals. Arrests of racketeers are rare. Convictions rarer still. And tough sentences almost unheard of. It was a really hard-hitting article 
getting into details not only of the violence and uh, illegal activities that were going on here in the Mahoning Valley, but also um, just the, in many cases, the corruption that helped to support all of that. It's so crazy. We are Youngstown. <laughs> <laughs> we are Youngstown. Bum, 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 bum. Yeah. (laughs) As the the city became known for the number of gangland murders starting in the 40s, it also became known for its preferred method of offing victims. It was called the Youngstown Tune-Up, Justin. (laughs) This was what they referenced for a car bombing, the Youngstown (laughs) Tune-Up. I'm going to start saying it. And by the way, again, things are going, this is when things are not awful. Yeah. Yeah, they got cute names. This is the American dream. Yeah. They got cute names for their murder. I love that. Isn't that nice? Youngstown tune-up. But the Rust Belt is rusty for a reason. And now is when you can really get in the weeds and have a difference of opinion in how you say, here's what happened to American manufacturing. And forgive me if you disagree with these elements, but these are two things that I think were one of the driving forces for what happened to the Mahoning Valley. First, the steel mills that had been operating in this area were up and running for decades, and they tended to not reinvest in new technologies to improve the way they worked. Now, you could call that greed from the CEOs or unions making things too expensive or just stupidity. Either way, these companies had a lot of inertia and change wasn't easy. Second, the U.S. started opening up trade globally. Here's a little clip from old Dick Nixon. In our relations with the Soviet Union, we have turned away from a policy of confrontation to one of negotiation. For the first time since World War II, the world's two strongest powers are working together toward peace in the world. With the People's Republic of China, after a generation of hostile isolation, we have begun a period of peaceful exchange and expanding trade. Peace has returned to our cities. So this whole idea is that we will be more peaceful if we have better relations with Russia and China. We'll have trade opened up. And the U.S. was open for business globally. And that meant not just China, but Japan and Germany were able to deliver steel to us at a price that was cheaper than it would have cost to make it and get it delivered here in the United States. So all of a sudden, these manufacturing companies that were the backbone of these cities started to close. In Youngstown, most remember Black Monday. It wasn't the stock market crash of 87 that people probably know about. It was the day that one of the largest manufacturing plants closed in the Mahoning Valley. On September 19, 1977, Sheet & Cube, now a subsidiary of the Likes Corporation, announced that it was closing down most of its Campbell plant. It's hard to believe this is happening. After working here for so many years, it's hard to believe that we're put out on the street and don't know what we're going to do. 5,000 steel workers, many of them skilled veterans of 20 to 30 years, lost their jobs. In Youngstown and nearby Campbell, they have a name for the day disaster struck. They call it Black Monday. In the months since Black Monday, United States Steel has also announced that it will let its mills in Youngstown run down, eventually eliminating 5,000 jobs. General Fireproofing, a major steel user, is leaving. General Motors Packard Electric in nearby Warren laid off more than a thousand workers. Did you see that? U.S. Steel. 
you know, like ancillary things that you steal, car companies, manufacturing, like everything started to go. Thousands of people started losing their jobs in the late 70s. And the government has, you know, a mild safety net, and but they didn't bail out those companies or the workers. And they left the town at the whim of rampant unemployment and the mafia. Let's go back to Senator Hagan and hear what it was like from his perspective during that time. Well, Senator, there were a couple issues. Obviously, uh, many of us that got out of high school had an opportunity to work at four or five different steel mills, five or six different railroad uh, companies. Uh, and we saw the possibilities that, that those of us that didn't want to go to college, those of us that struggled with uh, life and making sure that uh, you had some income, had that opportunity to go anywhere you really wanted. Uh, but I also saw the the Black Monday. I saw the dropout of uh, of the jobs, the struggles that many people had with making up for the loss of uh, health care, uh, the pension rights, and good pay, and good wages, and good pay that many other people just didn't have around the country. So I saw that, and you know, when you see ten thousand jobs disappear overnight, when you feel that. People are abandoning your community. They're leaving in droves. Then there's a real frustration. Uh, and people sometimes would uh, talk to me about the politicians that would come in. And they love to have these campaign commercials that would show padlocks on the mill gates. And people were saying, what are you going to do now? Well, if you elect me, we'll bring back the poverty. We'll bring back, take care of poverty. We'll bring back the jobs. Uh, we'll bring back opportunity for the future. Uh, and many of those politicians, Democrats included, uh, made a lot of promises that they just couldn't keep. That was the struggle that many of us went through. As I said, I worked for two years in a steel mill, 50 years um, servicing most of those uh, those places in my first probably 20 years before uh, first 10 years, actually, because I started on a railroad in 1970 worked uh, for about 15 years, uh, then was elected to office. But I saw the, the bottom drop out. I saw the lights go out. I saw the fire diminished. And I saw the struggles of many, many of my colleagues that worked uh, in those steel mills just uh, get depressed, get frustrated, uh, and, and sometimes just leave. At one time, at one time in a three-county area, we had 40,000 homes that were for sale. Oh. That's because they left. They abandoned the valley. They abandoned this area rather quickly. And of course, not only did the depression of the jobs set in, but depression physically uh, and mentally uh, of many of those individuals who just had to find another job or just go on unemployment. And in fact, some cases just left the area and disappeared. So we we have a struggle. We had a big struggle here in the Mahoning Valley. And the community tried to rally around the workers. Take a listen to this. The campaign is asking individuals and groups to show support of the worker community ownership plan by opening Save Our Valley accounts in local savings institutions. Every bank in the valley is cooperating in this demonstration of local determination. The Save Our Valley accounts are seen as a signal to Washington that the valley's citizens are in earnest about the takeover of the Campbell plant. On February 16th, the Ecumenical Coalition's Save Our Valley campaign moved into high gear with a community rally in the Boardman United Methodist Church. The opening hymn was sung by the choir of the Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company. 
Wait, wait. They, the plant that closed down was up for so long, for decades, that they had their own That's, choir. Wow. Yeah. And it's always that song, too. <laughs> it's always that old-timey... <laughs> I don't even know what the lyrics are. <laughs> they know. We're going down to work. <laughs> hi ho, hi ho. <laughs> so when the Youngstown Sheet and Tube Factory went down, the workers rallied together to try to get the government to back them to take over the plant themselves. Are we following here? That's right. The workers wanted to control the means of production. Hmm. Hmm. Communism. (laughs) 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 They thought if they could get government backloads, then they could take the plant back. So that's that's the bailout. But the government, uh, well, let's play this next clip. Early this month, the National Center for Economic Alternatives released its preliminary findings. The highlights, a worker community takeover is technically and economically feasible. Needed to start up, 145 to 185 million dollars. The model of ownership proposed includes workers, community and church groups, plus private investment. Needed from these sources, 52 million dollars over two to five years. So all this community is asking for is we'll take on the risk of the debt, but just back the loans that they wanted to borrow by the government. And the government didn't help. And so the slide starts to happen fast. And it's funny, like we just, you know, with COVID and stuff like that, and when the market turns within four days, five days, maybe less, billions of dollars get poured into the market to prop it up. But like an entire vertical of our manufacturing just gets wiped out in a year or two. In months, everyone loses their job. Nothing. We don't do a damn thing. And what do they turn to? Some light socialism. What? Not that. Anything but that. And one last clip from Senator Hagan here today. I really wanted to figure out if he remembered who people blamed for all this? Um, I think they blame politicians. Um, I think that they uh, blame promises that were never kept, promises made and never kept. I think that uh, they blame the fact that uh, the environmentalists, in some cases, they blame the fact that uh, the environmentalists said it was too dirty and companies moved somewhere else where they could make uh, Eastern Europe dirtier. Uh, and they move those jobs uh, and move those opportunities with them. I, I remember uh, people talking about uh, the the advent of the real automobile growth. And, you know, I used to run on a train called the Detroit Still. It would leave Newcastle, Pennsylvania. Cena, you probably remember that. I know Newcastle, yeah. And I would go uh, west all the way to Willard, Ohio. But on the way, we would pick up different auto parts. We would pick up the bumpers. We would pick up the steel. We would pick up the oil that would uh, fire up the furnaces in Detroit. And by the time that train got to Detroit, uh, you were almost ready to put the put the automobile together. But when that disappeared, when people lost that faith in the future, a lot of people just got very 
very disappointed and they they tried to find someone that they could blame. I think the void was that many of those politicians at that time were Democrats. We were Democrat rich in this area for the longest time. Uh, and people were saddened by the fact that those jobs are gone, people are gone. And quite frankly, all of us were to blame. I mean, you know, who, who wants to run for office and not say, I'd like to create jobs. I'd like to bring back some jobs. The problem that you had uh, with that was many people said, well, let's bring back um, uh, uh, the dirigibles. And they had a factory that they were going to make dirigibles. Well, that fell through. They had a new car that they were going to try to build in the Youngstown area. That was a false promise. Uh, there's, there were a lot of false promises made. So there, were, there was a lot of blame to go around. Uh, and I think that a good portion of it fell on the political system itself. Big thanks to Senator Hagan again. But back to the story here. And I know this is a lot of context, but I just want to show you how bad this all ended up being for the vulnerable people of Youngstown. All the like TV stations were going out and interviewing people, and there's all these clips and stuff of people talking about how they're looking for work or how they just bought a home before uh, the Youngstown Sheet and Tube factory closed. They don't know how they're going to pay their mortgage now, but a lot of people reached out and wanted to help, but here's what happened. We met the Dills the day they gathered to watch their story on the CBS March magazine. The broadcast brought immediate results with several calls from people offering jobs. Now, a half a year later, we checked in to see what's happening with the Dills. Well, all the calls, Jen, that I got was seen to be a salesman at all was Amway's. I'm no salesman. I couldn't sell rice savers on a sinking ship, nor could I sell 50 cent pieces for a quarter. Now, I'm still interested in employment, anything but selling. Amway, guys. Amway. This is this is this is this great microcosm of like the demise of the American working class, like high people that had high paid union jobs that provided for the American dream are like selling Amway uh, in, in like debt servitude in like, you know, within a year. Right. And also the MLM people saw vulnerable yeah. people looking for work and they were like, these will be great. They'll be great for our MLM. Yeah. Also, I can't sell lifesavers on a sinking ship or two, two quarters for a quarter or whatever. <laughs> it's so rough. If only these people could remember their roots, because there's also the irony of like by the time you get to probably, let's say – I don't know, 1985, how many of them become Republicans? Oh, yeah. No, this is this is the turn. This yeah. is the whole thing. Yeah, and yeah. this is when, you know, the party that you kind of came to the dance with is not the one you're leaving with. Yeah. And they got left on the dance floor alone. And that's who they look to, you know? They used to be... They used to be in, but not anymore. Off to the in suburbs, two too. Yeah. In 2000, the New Republic put out an article... That called Mahoning County, quote, the most corrupt county in America. It listed a number of public officials as being owned by the mob, including the chief of police, the outgoing prosecutor, the sheriff, the county engineer, the members of the local police force, a city law director, several defense attorneys, politicians, judges, and a former U.S. attorney. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody. <laughs> the mob was like, this is our place like now. Yeah. <laughs> it was like McDonald's fast food checkout person. Yeah. In the mob. I'm owned by the mob. Every, everybody need a job here? Well, mm -hmm. let, let me tell you who's hiring. Mm -hmm. La Cosa yeah. Nostra has got a job for you. 
<laughs> when the jobs left, the rats came in and the town was overrun by the mob. Poverty was at an all-time high, and when people are desperate, they become vulnerable. A vulnerable city beset by predators needed a hero, and they found it in Jim Trafficking. A home. Wait, let's play right there. I need a hero, <laughs> and, then Jim, and then Jim Trafficking comes out. Beat me up! Beat me up! <laughs> Beat me up! He <laughs> was a hometown almost hero. Perhaps it was the fact that he never actually made it to the NFL. That made him much more relatable and beloved. <laughs> His story was their story. The city was built on a promise never realized. A.K.A. the Cleveland Browns. <laughs> yeah, the Trafficant was Youngstown, and Youngstown was Trafficant's playground. Wow. Isn't that crazy? This is, this is like the creation of the most vulnerable people in America during that time period. When we come back, we'll dive into how Trafficant took his awful toupee and got to Congress. I mean, honestly, the toupee looks like it's a, like a rat died on his head. I mean, I think it's a toupee. Beat me up. Beat me up. We'll be right back. Fluffy bread, fresh tortillas, classic burger buns, and so many carbs. Carb fear is real. But Hero Bread makes healthier versions of the carb-heavy favorites we love the most. We're talking fewer calories, 0 to 2 grams net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and seriously great taste. Plus more of the dietary fiber and protein you want. No compromise. Don't skip out on your favorites. Just use Hero Bread. Get 10% off your order at Hero.co with code Hero10 at checkout. That's Hero10 at H-E-R-O co. Welcome back. You know, Jim Trafficking has actually done a lot. It's it's kind of impressive how many other careers he had. In addition to star quarterback and a U.S. congressman, he was sheriff of Mahoning County in Ohio. He taught courses on drug and alcohol dependency and recovery at Youngstown State University and Kent State University. He was a consumer finance director for a nonprofit. He got a master's degree at not one but two different graduate schools. So two master's degrees. This sounds a little like Kanye's um, college dropout. <laughs> then you get then your, your master's, 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 master's. These degrees have degrees. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kanye! <laughs> Kanye! <laughs> I done told you about Sam talking about them Jews. I done told you, Kanye, about talking about them Jews. You're going to lose everything, Kanye. Told you. How do you sleep at night? With those degrees. Yeah. <laughs> he also taught at the police academy where his students included Steve Gutenberg and that guy who makes who can make his mouth sound like a helicopter. <laughs> That's uh, Michael Winslow. Michael Winslow, yeah. Uh, 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 you know, I, I was uh, playing tennis the other day with my friend. <laughs> what? <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> then the police came. <laughs> Get on the ground! Then I jumped over a fence and there was a dog. I don't Have know you what that not is. seen no. Michael Winslow stand up? Okay. Uh, this Justin and I yeah, grew this up is with before this. Before my time, yeah, is, you know, I was born up literally ten years ago. Yeah, you were born. You got, yeah. you got to 2016. So Michael Winslow is a, uh, he can he's a stand up comedian that can do all these noises with his mouth and that's his act and he still headlines today. You him. can go see him by the yeah, way. Yeah, he still works. Oh, he's incredible. he's incredible. And then in Police Academy, they just had him come on and like do that. And he was just like the weird guy. Yeah. I like that. 
He's just made. Yeah, he would like scare criminals by like making machine gun sounds oh, and doing so intercom. Funny. Yeah, I get it. I get his comedy. Yeah. It's like ASMR before ASMR. So he's an accomplished Renaissance man, no doubt about it. All of this would probably lead you to believe that he came from money. He did not. His full name was James Anthony Trafficant Jr., but his friends called him Jimbo. Trafficant Sr. was a truck driver, salt of the earth type. John Cougar Mellencamp's wet dream. Also interesting that his, like, traffic ant is <laughs> the truck driver name. I don't know what his, like, call sign was on the CB radio, but. I get it. Yeah. Dealing with some traffic. He graduated in 1959 from Cardinal Mooney High School, and for the next eight years, traffic ant would be chasing his football dreams. They came to a close in 1968, the same year he married his wife, Trish. And moved back to Trafficant's family farm in Mahoning County, just outside of Youngstown. One story that I think can really tell you about who Jim Trafficant was is, the, is something that we mentioned earlier, right? The, the, the quarterback thing, the football. And this is how he stood out in school. It made him so popular, he even started palling around with his high school football coach. After his coach became involved in politics, he would bring Jim around to events. I don't know why, because that is super weird. If it's not weird, it's definitely creepy, especially since Cardinal Mooney High School has seen a lot of sexual abuse allegations. Super weird. Super weird. But whatever he was doing, it worked. He went to the University of Pittsburgh and became the star quarterback. Such a star in fact, that he was drafted into the NFL by the Steelers, but he was cut before the season started and played four seasons of semi-pro ball, but never played a game in the NFL. But that's besides the point. Getting drafted is actually incredibly impressive. Here's a clip from the documentary uh, Welcome to Crime Town that's on Vimeo that everyone should go rent and watch. They're not a sponsor of us. We're going to play a couple clips from this documentary, but it's a great doc that kind of summarizes and gives you a really great insight into the Mahoning Valley and Jim Trafficant. Ed O'Neill is in this documentary um, from Married with Children and Modern Family. I know him from Married with Children, obviously. One other thing is that not only did he just get drafted, which is impressive, but if he would have been on the team, he would have been a multi-Super Bowl winning player. (laughs) Yeah. The Steelers would go on to win four Super Bowls over the next, I don't know, five, six years. You'd have been Terry Bradshaw's backup. That, which is crazy. He would have partied so hard. This is hard for me because my brain is rotten from George Santos, so I don't believe that he was going to be drafted into the NFL. <laughs> I feel like this is a lie. Everything's I feel like he's a lie. Been li- everything's a lie. Like, oh, yeah, I was not a volleyball team. Were you? Were you? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, you know, no, I hear, I, I can empathize. No, I get, what I, can <laughs> I get this kind of community though. It's like you would bring, it wouldn't be seen weird to bring Jim Trafficking around because really this is the all American star quarterback of like the town mm. that is, yeah. ra- is rallying around sports because it's part of its identity and it's, and it's the community base, you know, it, it all makes sense. Football in Southwestern Pennsylvania and, and, you know, Western Pennsylvania is very similar to like football in like. Texas. Texas. You know what I mean? It is life. But here is uh, Jim Trafficant when he was with the Pittsburgh Panthers and a quick story about it. My first memory of Trafficant is is vivid. Jim Trafficant was the quarterback. He was a flashy, cocky, confident, huge ego football player. 
and he was very good. To give you an insight into his character, Pitt was playing Notre Dame. He had been benched for not listening to the coach. Then Jim Trafficant puts the Panthers in front with a heads-up play. When he can't find the receiver, he carries it over. He promised to do exactly what the coach told him to do, and he would do it, and he was playing. Trafficant's back throws a 70-yard touchdown pass, and now they're beating Notre Dame. Traff's out of the game. Found out later the coach is in a running play. So even back then, he was going to do it his way, right or wrong. It's just a little bit of like a little bit of a taste of who this guy was. You can count on Jim Trafficant to be one of the worst bad actors Youngstown will ever know. A public official, at least. His first stop on his road to political corruption was a 10-year stint from 1971 to 1981 as the executive director of the Mahoning Valley Drug Program. If that wasn't enough, while he was director of this program, he kept going to school. Who does that? <laughs> yeah. He got the, this is when he got those master's degrees, one in educational administration from Pitt. And then in 76, he received another MS in counseling from Youngstown State University. I mean, what? Spending a decade as the executive director of a drug program in Mahoning County would likely put you on a path of dealing with drug users and sellers. Due to the high level of mob activity in the town, one can only guess where Trafficant might have met a mob member or two. <laughs> At the, especially in a place that's like, you know, kind of classic Americana, it would have definitely not been that super Italian restaurant that no customers have ever been to in like eight years. <laughs> that front. <laughs> yeah. It's got no one, one table in the back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Doesn't smell like food at all in here. What's going on? What's yeah. <laughs> if, if you walk in and sit down, they have to like call somebody to come in and actually prepare a meal. <laughs> However, he was introduced to the criminal element. I don't know. They certainly formed at least a tenuous relationship. It's only speculation, of course, because these guys are usually pretty good at keeping their fucking trap shut. So remember, Trafficant is rising in the ranks of politics. He's seeing his shining city on a hill. Now it's the late 70s. He's seeing his, his beautiful city unravel. He had gained enough power and he was elected sheriff of Mahoning County, which that election to be sheriff was its own thing because he was going up against a mob-connected incumbent, and he still won. His stated inspiration for running for sheriff was, quote, deep-seated animosity for the political elite of the valley. Mm. We've heard that before. He considered those political elite owned by the mob. His term for sheriff started in 1981, and he quickly became known for roaming the streets of Youngstown with a two-by-four in his hand, a la Sheriff Pusser, in the 1973 movie Walking Tall, later remade by The Rock. In the movie, the sheriff carries around a four-foot club and smashes baddies. The move, <laughs> the movie was based on a real-life Tennessee Sheriff Pusser who really did walk around with a big stick, although that one more resembled a long baseball bat. The real Sheriff Pusser was a 26-year-old, 6'6", 250-pound former wrestler with big muscles who had vowed to clean up his corrupt town without the use of a gun, hence the big stick. 
I think we have an image of this. Look at this gigantic man. Let's take a look. I'm trying to see. The camera's a little low. That I'm makes him look bigger. It. But I'm it looks like he's holding a giant baguette. That's what's often said about me. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a baguette in your pants? They said, or are you happy to see me? Said, well, however way we see ourselves, Justin, Trafficant definitely saw that himself. That guy's 26? <laughs> <laughs> Ew. <laughs> yeah. Y'all don't age well at all. all. Yeah, all these guys are so, like, thick. Well, they 26. Also, but they also, they also smoke and drink nonstop. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I knew a guy that was 26 that looked like that when I started doing comedy. I was like, you're how old? Jesus <laughs> yeah. Christ. Oh, my God. Uh, they all look, yeah, they all look like the dad from the Wonder Years. Yeah, I'm like, how did this happen? So, Trafficant saw himself like this guy. I mean, not nearly as impressive. And Jim was in his 40s when he became sheriff, having long ago lost his NFL body. I also like the idea of hit, that hitting someone in the, with a two by four repeatedly is somehow less violent. Like, I'm not gonna yeah. shoot. <laughs> I'm not gonna shoot you. I'm just gonna beat you to death with a two by four because I'm I have morals. All right, we got a clip. Here's Jim Trafficant at an actual bar raid from a, a news clipping from a WKBN 27. It was about mid-evening when the call went out from the county building. All regular and reserve deputies who could were to report immediately. They were gathered in the commissioner's meeting room, where they were divided into seven teams, each team assigned to a different bar or club gathering place. And the time it was all to start, 11 p.m. News photographer Tom Russo and I went with the sheriff himself, who was controlling operations from his car, M1. M1 to radio. M1, go ahead. Monitor this pack one. Leave it open for us. Negative, I call me. That's affirmative. Can you tell us what you're looking for? These are basically inspections. Looking for any possible sales to minors, trouble spots, complaints by citizens. So we put them together one night with a crew. Try and reduce the, the problems there. Not necessarily do a lot of busting, but if the bars are bad and we get enough violations, we have advanced crews in, in the real bad places. And they will spot if there's any drug transactions they noticed or any sales to minors or juveniles that might be on the premises. So that when the teams come in, They'll go directly to those people, and then we could cite the bar, and if necessary, if they're serious enough to shut these bars down. But necessarily because we visit a bar doesn't mean there'll be a citation issued, but they've been in subjects of complaints. Our first stop at Hillman and St. Louis. All was orderly. Nothing even remotely out of the ordinary was going on. Then two places on Indianola. He's near wearing Hillman. white shorts the same and a hoodie Friendly on having a bar raid. Two of the spots on the list were even closed up completely. There were two arrests made at a Coitsville bar, one 26-year-old barmaid for selling and one 20-year-old girl for buying liquor underage. It's funny that these are the problems they're, you know, that they're policing at this point in their history because, like, crack cocaine is waiting around the corner and it's like, just <laughs> you wait. Yeah, you think this is bad. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to wish it was just some 20-year-old getting a vodka soda. Yeah, I mean, he I mean they they they're policing like suburban although I mean I thought you know what the bars were rougher back then. 
You know, yeah. you notice how like drugs made the bars less rough. Like you had to probably back then you probably had to fight a guy or a guy had a switchblade or people got shot in the bars. Like we don't really do mm. that anymore. You know, what's weird is that trafficant may have done these bar raids. He seemed like a good sheriff. He carried his two by four around. But in reality, he was participating in as much corruption as he was fighting. <laughs> One year into his new job, he was indicted on federal racketeering charges for mob activity and accepting bribes. <laughs> yeah. So he took another cue from his favorite movie. He represented himself in court, just like Sheriff Pusser in Walking Tall. Oh, no. Yeah, he's just shutting down all the bars that compete against the mob. <laughs> when we come back, we'll talk about the trial. Fluffy bread, fresh tortillas, classic burger buns, and so many carbs. Carb fear is real, but Hero Bread makes healthier versions of the carb-heavy favorites we love the most. We're talking fewer calories, 0 to 2 grams net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and seriously great taste. Plus more of the dietary fiber and protein you want. No compromise. Don't skip out on your favorites. Just use Hero Bread. Get 10% off your order at Hero.co with code Hero10 at checkout. That's Hero10 at H-E-R-O C-O. Welcome back. The case pitted trafficking at the center of a bribery scheme involving the Pittsburgh and Cleveland mob. According to the Cleveland mob boss, Angelo Leonardo, who became an informant while Trafficant was running for sheriff, he was approached by Charles the Crab Carabia. <laughs> Real thoughtful names. Yeah. The Crab's brother. <laughs> the Crab's brother was the head of the Warren, Ohio mob. And he had been tasked with bribing Jim with $60,000. They said it was from them and their close associates in the Pittsburgh mob. Not a friend of mine, a friend of ours. The head of the Pittsburgh mob had asked Jim to simply retain a high-ranking member of the previous administration when he became sheriff and trafficant declined. All right, so did we get that? Pittsburgh mob tells Warren mob to give money to trafficant and all the Pittsburgh mob wants is just keep that guy that was in the previous administration because we've been fucking bribing him for years and we got a good thing going. Trafficant said he was against corruption, but he actually acted like he loved bribes. <laughs> so much so he, he had value. Yeah, he had taste in his bribes. Yeah. Okay. Of that $60,000, he only used five for his campaign expenditures and gave the mob back $55,000, claiming it was because he didn't want to work with a Pittsburgh mob, which I'm slightly offended by. <laughs> his trafficking was only interested in in-state racketeering. Yeah, Justin? Yeah, he has like a weird thing. He's like, hey, man, I, you know, I'm a, uh, I don't work with the Pittsburgh mob because Ohio. But he, yeah. play, but he played for Pittsburgh, so it's not state identity. He, he just it's really, weird. Yeah, so, so he didn't like, so I guess he just doesn't like the Pittsburgh mob specifically. He just likes the Warren O'Connor. He had a problem with these guys. I don't know what it was. Yeah. In later testimony, this is great. A former aide claimed that one of the times Jim returned money to Carabia, Carabia told him, quote, you're the first county candidate or official who gave money back. <laughs> <laughs> He's a good guy. Was well, a good guy. 
Anyways, Jim was actually playing both sides, got over $100,000 from Karabia and another 60000 from the Pittsburgh mob. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, that makes sense. Okay, okay. That, I was like, I wonder where he's going with this. Yeah, so, 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 so he's just doing the thing when he wants Marlowe's connection with the Greek. He's just dropping off sacks of cash, and yeah. they're like, take this. And he's like, no, you hold so, that for a little Wow, bit. returning it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so August 9th, 1982, Trafficking is indicted. He was elected sheriff in 1980, right? He starts his term in 81, investigated and, and indicted in 1982. So Trafficant is in the news cycle constantly for at least a, two or three years at this point. And just before his trial was set to begin on February 4th, 1983, he had a moment to show again that he was a hero to the common man. That same month when his battered town was facing high unemployment, and government assistance that wasn't enough to hold on to their homes, indicted Sheriff Jim Trafficant refused to sign the foreclosure papers on any local steel mill workers who couldn't keep up their house payments. These foreclosure statements, right, are filed by the banks and ordered by the courts. So if you don't do it as sheriff, then you're going to be held in contempt. Trafficking swore it was not a publicity stunt, so we have no reason not to believe him, just like George Santos is a star volleyball player. Mm -hmm. He said he would only foreclose on houses that could be proven as vacant. He wouldn't kick out a good, hardworking family. He also announced that he would no longer be holding sheriff sales on confiscated property. So that's going to piss off a judge. He was arrested and sentenced to get this 100 days in jail. Indicted sheriff, not in jail for something other than the indictment for Jim Trafficking. Well, and it also gets him indicted for, as, for, as like the people's champion. The people's champion. So get this. He goes on hunger strike. Yeah. He became a Buddhist. <laughs> and then he finished the 100 days in Youngstown awarded him the key to the city. Wait. I'm just kidding. Oh, I was like, uh, that lasted, makes sense. <laughs> he lasted three days. Uh, he, he, then he signed all the papers. Okay. He's not the man I thought he was. I was going to say the Buddhist thing sounds weird for like the Rust Belt. Like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. <laughs> I was looking at that. And I was just like, it's so weird. How? What, what, did, what did people think was going to happen? He was three days. Three days. <laughs> so at his racketeering trial... In court, he referred to himself as, quote, my client, because <laughs> he was representing himself. He spoke of the third person law, which I think is, is really funny here. And in the trial, it was revealed that the crab, who would be whacked several years later, had recorded his conversations with Trafficant, and in the recordings, Trafficant had admitted to taking the money. Whoa, this whoa, is... <laughs> <laughs> These tapes were eventually found by the FBI. Wah, wah. <laughs> he admitted to taking the money, but said that he was doing it on behalf of a sting operation that he was running against the mob and that he had already returned the money, oh, he's which a is a story an eight-year-old would come up with. Yeah. And we love it. And I'm pretty sure it's like the plot of like American Hustle. Yeah. Hell is old as time. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm running this. It's I got him. Actually, I'm scamming the, you know, it's not what it looks like. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm running an operation here. Sure. When the bribery thing was happening, he wasn't sheriff yet. But this was Trafficking's claim. 
The FBI poured over the tapes to figure out if he was actually conducting an investigation against the mob, but had concluded the claim was complete bullshit and he was just taking mob money because he liked, I don't know, money? They tried to make him flip when it was clear that he hadn't been running a sting, but trafficking ain't no snitch. He had already been on the inside for a long <laughs> weekend. So he knew hard time. Three-day trafficking. <laughs> Trafficant argued in court that the FBI only had copies of the recordings, not the originals. And there was no way to know if the recordings had been tampered with. Reasonable mm. doubt. And so I tell my wife, anytime she finds my sex tapes. Yeah. Reasonable doubt. I go, you can't, Those, you don't know if that's um, the original tape of that's me. That's AI. That's AI, yeah. baby. Come on. They, they yeah. can, AI could put that mole there. Uh... <laughs> A AI knows my move. You know the one move that I do. <laughs> but this reasonable doubt move worked. Trafficant was acquitted of all charges and his legend continued to grow. But I would say this jury was tainted, if you will. Check out this clip from a news story uh, on the jurors that were reflecting later on that trial. And this is a report from 2002. It's clear how most of the jurors in Trafficant's 1983 trial felt about him back then, eager to shake his hand outside the courthouse when it was all over. We looked at every aspect of the trial, and there was no way that we felt that we could come up with any other verdict but not guilty. Eighteen years later, some describe it as a very stressful ordeal. Memories coming back as the congressman gets ready to go up against the government again. Because it was just so hard. It was really rough. Chuck Buttrick, a truck driver from outside Cleveland, gets quite emotional talking about it. Every day it was different. You've seen it, you've seen the evidence today, and you say he's guilty. You see the evidence tomorrow, so wait a minute, there's a doubt. In the end, trafficking completely wins this juror over, standing behind the 83 verdict despite the latest allegations. The FBI is uh, upset that they lost the last time, and I believe that uh, they're still trying to uh, get him. I want him to be free. He's a great man. Similar thoughts from fellow juror Wanda Unruh of East Liverpool, who talked to us by phone. Oh, I trust him. Um... So you better live up to that, right? Most of the jurors remember their trust of the congressman growing as they began to lose trust of the FBI, leaving behind skepticism that exists to this day. Well, I know they're going to keep trying to find something on him. Uh, they don't give up very easy. <laughs> he, he, he looks like a, a good, um, what do they call it, a scapegoat, you know, someone to... Beat up on. Don Mumford from Warren did not want to go on camera for this story, but speaking to us just last year, predicted Some another victory for the congressman. <laughs> Nevertheless, I, th I think he's, he's uh, going to come out squeaky clean. Another Warren man, former juror John Lampkin, also spoke up last year. I don't know that he's done anything that would say he's not a good man or an honest person. The man they saw then. I'll prepare and try and present the truth do the best I can. Not much different than the man most of the former jurors see today. They may end up putting me in jail, but you know what? I'm going to fight those jackasses. Is there anything you want to say to Mr. Trafficant right now? I'd just like to meet him. <laughs> Isn't this incredible? 
This is like today. This is this is today. This yeah. is a mirror image of today. Yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. It's the same like supporters as uh, Donald Trump. It's like yeah. It's like if a charismatic uh, person that connects with the white working class, right? He just becomes like bulletproof, and the government and, and the government becomes like the bad guy instantly. And like. Listen, this show is not like a stand for the FBI or anything like that, but it is interesting to just point out that what there's just people at the FBI just have like a vendetta. They're going to wait, you know, 20 years to like get Jim Trafficant. Well, these people probably didn't think that the FBI's like, uh, you know, activities against the civil rights movement were bad. Yeah, no, 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 no. no. That, that was warranted. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, at least they don't have the same, you know, conspiratorial attitude. Yeah. It's also funny, later in 1987, he would lose a civil case <laughs> against the IRS for not paying taxes on the money that he had been bribed with. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, it's always... That is incredible. It it's is always, always the, the taxes. taxes. Every time. But by that point, he was already a congressman, so mm -hmm. he wins. Next week, guys, we're going to talk about how Jim Trafficant became a congressman, what he did as a congressman, all the incredible C-SPAN hits he had while he was congressman. There's this thing that you can do called the 60-second speech where you have a minute to say whatever the hell you want and you are not subject to slander laws or anything like that. So you could say literally anything. You have It's lawless speech, completely like free. 60 seconds, go. Boom. What do no, you guys want to say? Nothing. Anyways, we'll do it. We'll do it when we stop recording. We'll share. We'll have a sharing circle. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Fraudsters. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Check out the show notes for the show's social media links so you can follow us and see resources we use for this episode. Fraudsters is hosted by me, Sina Gaznavi, Justin Williams, and Ariel Lieti. Fraudsters is produced by Jordan Aconcia, written by Nick Turner, and edited by Ryan Connor. Noreen Malik is our production coordinator. Research was provided by Patrick Fisher. Legal research by Robert Rosigliano. Music by Grant Gordon. The executive producer is me, Sina Gazdami, and this has been a production of Zero Cool and The Last Podcast Network. Fluffy bread, fresh tortillas, classic burger buns, and so many carbs. Carb fear is real, but Hero Bread makes healthier versions of the carb-heavy favorites we love the most. We're talking fewer calories, 0 to 2 grams net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and seriously great taste. Plus more of the dietary fiber and protein you want. No compromise. Don't skip out on your favorites. Just use Hero Bread. Get 10% off your order at Hero.co with code Hero10 at checkout. That's Hero10 at H-E-R-O dot C-O.